We're continuing on our series in Genesis this evening, so if you want to open up your Bible, let's follow along. Genesis chapter 35, and we're going to start halfway through that chapter, verse 16, through to the end of chapter 36. Um, I, I wasn't here this morning, I was in luck on the Tarantin, that's why I miss seeing Alistair cry. And uh, I fear that halfway through chapter 36, I may also end in tears, because there's a lot of very difficult words um, and names in here. So... Genesis chapter 35, starting off at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Anai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It was the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Isaacar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Natalie, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher, and these were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arabah, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died. And he was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adah bore to Esau, Elpihaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Ruesh, Juesh, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Elipaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Riel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Timan, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Natath, 
Zerah, Shammah, and Mesah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ohelibamah, the daughter of Anad, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeesh, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs of Timan, Omar, Zephu, Kanaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalak. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz, the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, and chiefs Nathath, Zerah, Shema, and Mesa. These are the chiefs of Ruel, the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basmath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Holiambamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs Juesh, Jilam, and Korah. And these are the chiefs born of Holiambamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shifu, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, A, and Anah. He is Anah who found the hot, the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anah, Dishon, and Oholibimah, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshdan, Ethran, and Sharan. These are the sons of Ezer. Bilhan, Zavan, Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Boer, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhablaah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Harad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place the name of his city being Evith. Harad died, and Samla of Mashrakah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shual of Rehoboth of the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shual died, and Bilhanan the son of Achbor reigned in his place. Bilhanan the son of Achbor died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Paul. His wife's name, Metabel, the daughter of Matrid, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Ohelabamah, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Timan, Mibzar, Magdael, and Imram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom. 
according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to God for his word. Okay, if you have a Bible, then please do open up to Genesis. Genesis 35. We're just going to be working our way through all those verses. We might not take it verse by verse, um, just to help me. <laughs> Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we love hearing your word. We love it that you're a God who speaks. And we love the fact that you change us through your word. And so we pray now that you would do that, that your word and your spirit would be at work. So Lord, I pray you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And would you give us hearts with a deep longing desire to be obedient to your word, to be shaped and transformed and changed by it. So, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Picture the scene. You uh, fancy a, a change of car, and so you, you scroll through the, the usual places. You might go to look for one, and you decide to buy a second-hand car. It's an old 2011 red Toyota uh, Corolla that catches your eye, and the man who's selling it uh, agrees to meet you in the Asda car park just beside the the recycling bins there, that's where you arrange to meet him. And he's going to show you the car. And so you get chatting to him. He's a very pleasant man. Uh, and as you get talking, he, he says, there's some things you need to know about this car if you're going to buy it. He takes you around to the, the, the passenger side of the car. He gets down on his hands and knees, and he points out some little scratches that are just along the, the front of the, uh, of the passenger door. And he says, here's what happened. When my son was young, he was on his scooter, and he scratched that little panel of the car. And then, well, he takes, you, um, he takes you to the back seat, and he says, there was one day that my son was in the back, and he was learning with, to play with matches. He shouldn't do that, but it, this is what happened. He struck the match, and he dropped it, and so there's this little mark in the back seat that's, that's burnt. And then he tells you about the gearbox. He says, the gearbox does something funny where it only goes into reverse if you've been in second gear first. Cannot explain it. Everyone's looked at it. They don't understand it, but you have to put it in second gear, and then it goes into reverse. But he says... For 50,000 miles, it's been doing this, and it's never given any trouble as long as you go from second into reverse. And then he tells you that one more thing, and the one more thing is that five out of the seven options for the fan don't work. Only two of them work. It's either off or it's on. That's it. That's basically what you've got. Nothing in between. And here's the question. The question is, as you listen to this man, he shows you the car and he tells you everything about the car, would you buy the car? <laughs> would you buy the car? And you might think, well, no way, there's, there's too many issues, all these little issues, he's, he's highlighted them there. Or you could think the opposite, you could think this, you could think to yourself, okay, here is an honest man who has gone out of his way to highlight all of the things that are wrong with his car, things that I would have not known until I had actually purchased it. But the fact that he has highlighted them tells me that this is the sort of man that I can trust. It's a second-hand car. I wasn't expecting it to be perfect. Here's a man that I can buy a car off, and I can trust him. I can do business with a man like this. He's told me what to expect, and he hasn't sold me some sort of false dream. It's the kind of man I could buy a car from. <laughs> He's told you the truth, hasn't he? He's given you the warts and all, and he said, this is how it is. So here's a man you can trust. 
When it comes to Genesis 35, it's not unlike that, is it? We can continue to follow the, the life of Jacob. And if you were here last week, well, you'll know that he had this wonderful encounter with God again, where God reminds him of the promises that were made to Abraham. Where God reminds him that these are promises that are, are his to claim. God reminds him that God has chosen him. And in a very real sense, Jacob encounters God once again, and he pours out his worship to him. And yet the writer of Genesis wants us to know that worshiping God doesn't remove us from trials of various kinds. The writer of Genesis does not endorse the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you follow God, then everything's going to go really well for you. Financial blessing, physical well-being, everything will go well for you and your family. That certainly wasn't Jacob's experience. Now, Jacob knows only too well that his faith did not shield him from sorrow and from the common experience of man. Let's see it in the text, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. Remember, that's where he had had this wonderful encounter with God. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried in the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. Here is Jacob, Jacob who has just met with God. God has reassured him of the promises that he had made to Abraham, reassured him that the promises still stood and that God was working through his very offspring. And the next thing we know is that in Jacob's life, he loses his wife. This was the love of his life. This is the woman who he had met at the well all those years ago. This is the woman that he had worked 14 years in order to pay the bride price for. And here she is, and she dies in a really difficult childbirth. Here he is on his way to Bethlehem, and he experiences one of the great bitter providences of God. He loses his wife in childbirth. And if you know the story of what's happened so far, well, then you'll know that there is a, a particularly sad irony in the situation. Because what has happened in Rachel's whole marriage, well, it, it's been soured by this struggle to have children. Leah, her sister, who, who, who Jacob marries first, well, she seems to have no trouble producing children, child after child. But for Rachel, things have been much, much, much more difficult. In fact, in Genesis 30, verse 1, she cries out to her husband, and she says this. She says, give me children, or I shall die. Give me children, or I shall die. And sadly, sadly, it's the very thing that she believed she needed in order to live that actually brings about her death. And I wonder, I wonder if there's a little parable here for each of us this evening. I'm in no way dismissing the pain of infertility for Rachel. It is indeed a profound and sometimes hidden, silent struggle. But once you get to the point where you say, I need this, and insert anything else, 
or I die, we have moved to the moment of idolatry. It doesn't matter what it is. If you say, give me this, or my life is not worth living, what we are doing is moving something into the place of God. And James, in the morning series, has already taught us what happens. What happens if we continue down the road of idolatry, if we continue down the road of sin? It is the road of death. And so the very thing that we could long for, if it is anything other than Jesus, will kill us if it is the main thing. If it is more important than Jesus in your life, well then, that's what's going to happen. And so I wonder this evening, is there something that you have become consumed by? Consumed by. Something that in your mind you have got to the point where you're saying, if I cannot have this, then my life is not worth living. Perhaps like Rachel, for you it is a child, a longing for children or more children. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife. Coming up to exam season, maybe it's a particular grade, an offer from a particular university that you crave, a job with a particular salary, a house with parking and a view, a business that people are impressed with, a body that gets people's attention and they look at you and say, wow. And maybe in a sense, you need to realize that this evening, that idolatry, if it is not confessed to God, leads to one place. It leads us away from Jesus, and it leads to death. But the situation for Rachel and Jacob is an incredibly sad and painful one, isn't it? God grants their prayer for another son, and yet Rachel does not have time to enjoy him. And it's recognized by the name that she gives to him, Ben and I, which means sons of, son of my sorrows. But Jacob steps in and he renames this son. He says, Benjamin. Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. Focusing not on the sorrow through which he was brought about, but on the position of privilege that he will now have. You see, Jacob knows only too well that his faith did not shield him from sorrow and the common experience of man. Follow on, verse 21. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. He's just lost the love of his life. His true love, you might say. And yet Jacob, or Israel, journeyed on. He journeyed on. Because in one sense, this is what you have to do, isn't it? This is what we must do. Continue to put one step in front of the other even though we're not entirely sure what comes after that, but we trust God. We put one step in the front of the other and we just keep going, trusting God for grace to take one step at a time. Well, what happens next for this man of faith? Surely, unexpectedly, losing your wife and childbirth is, is as bad as it gets. And then we read the next verse, verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This is pretty messed up, isn't it? It's pretty messed up. While Jacob is grieving, what happens? His son finds himself in bed with one of his concubines. 
And the brevity of the detail in the text is telling in itself, isn't it? It's almost as if the the text itself is in shock at the sordid nature of what he has to report. Taylor Ralph Davis writes this, he says, one wonders if the writer is so disgusted, dismayed, or even ashamed over it that he cannot bring himself to supply any of the details. That kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Just this one little line in here, and it hits us, doesn't it? It's just given one line in the middle of all this text, and that's it. No more commentary, and we are left with lots of questions, lots of questions that we don't know the answers to. We have to ask the question, don't we? Why would he do this? Why would he do such a thing? Such a thing as to sleep with his father's concubine well. Certainly possible that it was out of lust for the woman, but she would have been considerably older. It could have been a lust for power that he sought to make it clear that he was going to be the next leader once his father would pass away. Or some have suggested that it could have been that he wanted to violate Bilhah to make sure that she would not be in a position to challenge his own mother Leah for the position of chief wife now that Rachel had died. We don't know, do we? We don't know because the writer refuses to say any more than what he's already given us. But he does tell us this, and it's worthy of note. Israel heard of it. Israel heard of it. Now, we know that he did not forget. He did not forget. And if this was some sort of power play by Reuben, it it spectacularly backfires. That's when it comes to blessing being passed on to the next generation by his father. First Chronicles lists that sleeping with Bilhah is the very reason that the birthright blessings are actually passed to the sons of Joseph instead. You see, Jacob knows only too well that his faith did not shield him from sorrow and the common experience of man. Whether the the death of someone in the family or whether the impact of sinful decisions that leave you reeling. And maybe you're here this evening and maybe you can relate to Jacob's experience. The actions of your husband or your wife, your brother or your sister, perhaps your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad. And the sinful actions of one individual have, have brought scorn on the whole family. Maybe it's public. Maybe it hit the papers. Maybe it's all over social media and your family name is now tainted with that story. Perhaps it's still pretty well hidden, but you know it's there. And it plays over and over on your mind. And it messes with your stomach. And the pain that is caused is perhaps even harder, even harder in one sense than a, a death in natural circumstances. You see, worshiping God does not remove you from the trials of various kinds. And the writer of Genesis wants us to know that. And for Jacob, the trials keep coming, don't they? Jump down to verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arabah, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This time it's the death of his father, isn't it? And it's still painful, still a sad time, isn't it? But the details surrounding his death remind us that this one was not really 
unexpected. Isaac was old and he was full of days. A wonderful phrase that carries with it a sense of a, a life that was fully lived, as if he was ready to go. He died and was gathered to his people. Again, this reminder that there is life beyond the grave. The last breath here is not the end, but, but rather there is a family reunion, isn't there? The family reunion beyond the grave. In fact, there's two families that you can be part of, either the family of God's people or the family of those who have rejected God. One is a joyous family reunion, and one is one that you would not want to be part of. You see, Jacob knows only too well that his faith did not shield him from sorrow and the common experience of man. You see, worshiping God does not remove you from the trials of various kinds, and it's really important that we see that. The writer of Genesis doesn't try to paint us this picture of, of an unrealistic experience of, of what life will be like if you follow this God. Not at all. He wants you to see life will still have many trials. In fact, even more if you're a Christian. And yet, like the man who is selling you their car and highlights the things that are no longer working, the Bible wants to give you a really realistic picture of life as a Christian. And because it does so, because it does so, you can actually trust the Bible. You can trust the God of the Bible. You can take him at his word. Because he isn't hiding something. He isn't seeking to deceive you. Well, it's really clear, isn't it, as you read through Genesis. But before we leave chapter 35, there's something that we've missed. And, and maybe it, it didn't grab the tabloid, head, the, the tabloid headlines, like the story of Reuben in his father's bed. It didn't feature announcing a death in the funeral times. Well, this was a little snippet that really could have gone unnoticed. A few lines that pointed to the seemingly ordinary works of God, and yet, yet, they are incredibly significant because they show us that while all this other stuff's going on, the sin and the death, the pain and the tragedy, God was still at work. And I want you to see this. Look at um, the second part of verse 22. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And that is important to note the detail there, it's firstborn. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhaz, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Natalie, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. Now, because we kind of know the Bible story, this, this might not seem like much. It might not seem like much. Here we have a, a list of 12 sons. It's not quite the numbers of the uh, stars in the sky, is it? It's not quite the, the grains of sand on the seashore. And yet, what is it? It's a lot more than one. <laughs> it's a lot more than one. It's the beginning of the growth, isn't it? A people promised to Abraham and his descendants. And what are we seeing? This number is increasing. A people that was promised from Jacob's own offspring. And here they are, starting to grow. And perhaps we need encouraged this evening to believe in the promises of God. Perhaps in the midst of all that's going on in, in your life and, and my life, we need to know that we can hold the promises of God tightly because we know that God will deliver. 
The hope that we have in Christ as believers is a sure and certain hope. One day Jesus is coming back and he is going to make all things right. And that is incredibly good news. We have the hope of the new creation to come forever with God and his people. (laughs) This is a wonderful promise, isn't it? The reality that no matter what we face as believers is from the good hand of God. Isn't that a wonderful promise? The trials, whatever they are, they are to be counted differently. Isn't that what we think about in in the morning series in, in, in James? And rather than counting them as loss, we are to count them as gain. Why? Why would we count the trials as gain? Because God is at work transforming us, making us more like Christ. And that is a wonderful thing. So what we've seen so far is that in worshiping God, it, it doesn't remove us from the trials of various kinds. Not from death, not from the effects of sin. We all experience that whether you're a believer or not. But it doesn't mean that God is not at work. And here's the last thing I want us to see as we glance at chapter 36. The last thing I want us to see is that material and familial blessing doesn't necessarily point to eternal blessing. Just look at chapter 36. This is not the story of Jacob this time, but rather it's the story of Esau, his brother. This is Esau who despised his birthright. He didn't care for the covenant promises of God. He was truly a secular man. All he cared about was temporary blessing now. And he was willing to treat it for the eternal blessing to come. And perhaps the surprising thing is, as we read through chapter 36, just how much temporary blessing he really did receive. And maybe you expect it because Esau rejected God that things would not go well for him in the here and now. And then you look at chapter 36 and you say, I wasn't expecting that. We've just had a quick summary of Jacob's family tree. 12 sons, and then it feels like the writer wants us to compare and contrast with with all of the descendants that are linked to Esau. How many children and grandchildren are born to Esau? There's there's names galore, isn't there? And verses 67 highlight how well he's done for himself in business terms too. We see that then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went away into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. Too great. Esau is richly blessed, materially speaking, isn't he? And when it comes to the here and now, it doesn't look like there's anything that he is left wanting. In fact, they even seem to locate a spa in the wilderness. Did you pick that up? Do you see that? 36, 24, these are the sons of Zibion, Ai and Anna, and he is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. What an incredible thing to stumble upon as you, you know, you get sent out with the donkeys and you find yourself in the spa and you think this is, this is pretty good. And as we watch on, it looks like everything's good for Esau, doesn't it? There's chief after chief in verses 15 to 19. There's king after king in verses 31 to 39. It's a picture of leadership and order, and it looks like everything's come together pretty well for this man and his family, doesn't it? But then there's a few things, 
few things in chapter 36 that should send us little alarm bells. One of them is, is the names that are mentioned here because we know that names in Bible times are really important. They tell us something about the parents as they name their children, what was their priorities. And as we look at these names, there is something stark by its absence. And that's any mention of God. In fact, one writer notes that in 81 personal names that are listed in this chapter, only two contain the name of God. And that in verse 38, we even see the name of a false God feature. So Baal, Baal Hanan is the name. And most of the names that are mentioned here are not spiritual in their meaning, but merely sensual. So one means ornament, you know? Who can't get another good ornament? I'm sure you can pick one up at the car bits on Saturday. Another means perfume. Another means hyena. Do you get the picture? God is not in the picture. Esau's tribe have followed in the footsteps of Esau himself. They live life for pleasurable gain, perfume and ornaments and the like, hyenas. And as we look on, it maybe looks like a life that's pretty nice. It's pretty attractive. Caught the end of an interview on, um, I think it was maybe on TalkSport or BBC Radio 5 Live, one of those this week, and it was uh, with Peter Schmeichel, one of the uh, best ever goalkeepers that Manchester United had. And he was saying that he's got to this stage in his life where he has decided that he is only going to do things that he enjoys. That's his filter. He will only do things if they will make him happy. That's what he said. I will only do things if they will make me happy. No sense of duty. No sense of doing what's right. No sense of laying down your life for another. The sieve through which he would filter everything is Will it make me happy? Will it make me happy? And I think Esau could get on board with that. Pass me the stew, he says. Yes, I'm very hungry. Give me those girls, they're really pretty. Listening to God, no thank you. I'd just rather be happy, happy, happy. And yet there, there's a flaw in his philosophy, isn't there? In the life that's seen in chapter 36, there's something that cannot be hidden. Look with me at verses 32 to 39. King after king after king. And there's something that the writer of Genesis wants to emphasize about each of these kings. Bela, what happened to him? He died. Jobab, what happened to him? He died. Husam, what happened to him? He died. Harad, what happened to him? He died. Samla, what happened to him? Well, he died too. Sheol, what happened to him? He died. Achbor, what happened to him? He died. You see, this life comes to an end, and I think the fact that the writer highlights even kings dies shows us something that we need to be aware of. Death is coming to us all. And so to trade off eternal blessing from God for some temporal pleasure is an incredibly foolish, foolish way to live. And so as we get to the end, as we get to the end, believer, those who are trusting in Christ here this evening, remember that you have not been promised a bed of roses now. 
That's not what we've been promised. We've not been promised a life of ease and pleasure. Now I know the blessing is for what we look forward to, the new creation to come. And the Bible is clear, and, and Jacob knew that. He knew it then, and we should know it now. Today we are sojourners like Jacob. We are journeying through a foreign land, but this is not our home. And so we should not expect it to, to give us the blessings of home. Today we stand as pilgrims, but pilgrims who have learnt to count differently, to count differently the trials than how the world counts them. The world counts them as loss, we're to count them as gain. And as we look at the blessings that God gives Esau, this temporary blessing now, how much greater, how much greater must the blessing be for those who trust in Jesus? As we're brought into this new creation, well, it's going to be so much better. So much better. And so I think as we get to the end of these two chapters, we're to keep on journeying. We're to keep on journeying. We're not to give up. Don't throw in the towel. Keep trusting in the promises of God. Don't be fooled into trading eternal blessing for the equivalent of a tasty bowl of stew. And perhaps a word for those who are happily rejecting God this evening, living for their own sensual pleasure, for their own pleasurable gain. And to be honest, maybe you're here and you're thinking it feels pretty good. It all seems like it's going pretty well for me at the moment. Well, can I encourage you to look at the kings? Look at the kings, because they're all dead. And the Bible is clear that the same end will come to each one of us. And depending on how we respond to Jesus and what he's done on the cross, will determine where you will be gathered for the rest of eternity. Will it be with God and his people in the good new creation? Or will it be punishment? My prayer is that each of us will leave here knowing that we are trusting in Christ, the man who sits at the right hand of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And sometimes we get to passages and we realize they are incredibly honest. They paint us a picture of what life is really like with sin and death, and all sorts of misery. And yet we know that for the believer there is hope, sure hope, certain hope, because your promises are true. And if we are trusting in Christ Jesus this evening, well then that we know that one day Jesus is coming back and he is gonna bring us into the new creation. And there we will get to spend eternity enjoying all the blessings that are saved up for your children. Lord, I pray for each of us this evening that we might be trusting in Christ, leaving sure and certain of that hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.